Astrid and Jamila would like to acknowledge that this podcast was made on the lands of the Wurundjeri and the Boon Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and we note that this sovereignty was never ceded. Hello everyone and welcome back to season four of Anonymous Was a Woman. Who would have thought that two, let's face it, very nerdy individuals talking about books and feminism would last four seasons. My name is Jamila Rizvi and I'm joined today by my co-host Astrid Edwards. And Astrid, we're back in lockdown. We're back recording the podcast. What the listeners don't know is we're actually back recording the same episode of the podcast for the third time because of technical issues, but we're here. We are here and because this is our third time recording the same episode, it's going to be fantastic. We're very practised. In fact, by saying that, I worry we have perhaps put too much pressure now on this episode to sound highly scripted. But the truth is that if you record something for the third time over, you're pretty much delirious by that point. But I suspect that's how a lot of Victorians particularly are feeling right now as we get into properly our second snap lockdown of the year and one that I know is making a lot of people really uneasy. It really is. And all I can say is that books are my refuge. I think so. And our theme today is just that. Our theme is today. We wanted to focus on the present moment. We wanted to recognise that we are all living through a hugely historic period and history is being made as we speak and as we go about our daily business. And I think we are well within our rights to be asking big questions. You know, is this how we want the world to be? How will we make the world anew? Will there be a world to make anew? And I think a lot of those questions are being answered right now. How have you been feeling about your year and your reading year so far, Astrid? The year is not what I expected. My reading year is absolutely fantastic and I cannot wait to tell everybody about it. I've already read 50 books this year, so I am feeling very good. Show off. Very good indeed, Jam. I am delighted to hear that. We are also delighted to be back, everyone. We're so happy to be back in your ears, back in your company. We would like to thank, before we get underway, the excellent people at Hachette Publishing, as well as sharing our dedication to telling stories and telling the very best of stories. Hachette do that perhaps in an even more meaningful way in that they take authors that some of us have never heard of before. They take their words, they sculpt them, they support them, they put them on the page and they help send them out into the world. And this season, as we did last season, we will be discussing a bunch of Hachette titles as well as titles from other publishers. And we cannot wait to share those worlds with you. Astrid, I've got to say the thing that has dominated my thinking over the last few months, other than COVID or he who must not be named, it's definitely a he, isn't it, has been what we've seen happening out of Canberra and a broader reflection on workplaces and women's safety and seeing these issues that permeate women's everyday lives actually at the forefront of public consciousness. 
it's felt angry, but it's also felt good. It is angry and it is good. And both things can happen at once. I mean, obviously we are here talking, you know, with our background is always books and stories, right? And women's stories have historically been left out of books and that has been starting to change over the last few decades and is really ramping up right now in 2021 and and in the last handful of years. But now we are seeing women mattering at the highest levels of power in Australia and it's well past time. Sure is. Our first interview of season four, which will be dropping on Thursday, will be with former MP and Minister Kate Ellis, who has written a extremely timely book called Sex, Lies and Question Time. But before we get to Kate, we've got two books to discuss today. I'm going to be bringing to the table a political book, How Good is Scott Morrison by Peter Van Onselen and Wayne Errington. And Astrid, what have you got for us? Everybody, please don't get turned off by Jamila's choice today. I'm going to be bringing Gunk Baby by Jamie Marina Lau, which is an exceptional new work of fiction by honestly one of the rising stars of writing in Australia. Well, these books are both very pertinent to the present moment, so let's crack on with it before today is almost done. This is a new release. It's called How Good Is Scott Morrison by Wayne Errington and Peter Van Onselen. It's an exploration, according to the blurb, without fear or favour. So this is supposed to be a very objective book and it examines the trials and tribulations of our 30th Prime Minister. It kind of unpacks Morrison's, well, his very unlikely rise to the Liberal leadership and then how he won an election that absolutely nobody thought he was capable of winning except him. And then it puts a spotlight on his leadership since then, which I think is fair to say has been a real roller coaster. Jamila, I have read this book and I am really looking forward to hearing what you think about it. I... I struggled to pick it up. Once I picked it up, I devoured it really quickly, but I struggled to pick it up because I had a, and I don't normally have this problem, but I had a real problem with the title and the cover. The cover is an image of Scott Morrison. It's not very flattering to him. It feels a bit smarmy, feels quite marketing. And the title, you know, How Good Is Scott Morrison, just really raised my hackles. It made me think of, I don't hold a hose, mate. And I just kind of had a bit of an emotional barrier to going into this world and going into several hundred pages of Scott Morrison. But that's the point, isn't it? Like that's his sort of tagline catchphrase, how good is Australia? Isn't that the idea that we're playing off that to say how good is Scott Morrison? Oh, oh, absolutely. That is the idea. And it just really raises my hackles. But the sarcasm, the sarcasm wasn't fun for you. The sarcasm was uncomfortable. The sarcasm made me feel like Look, I am obviously always the black hat thinker that goes straight to existential dread, but it really raised my, oh my God, we're all going to die with him leading us down the road to oblivion. So I am a person who loves political biographies. I am a person who loves history and modern commentary and current events. So it's not the genre. I just really had a problem with finding the emotional courage to go into it. But now that I've shared that with the world, what did you think, Jam? I think it's important to note that Australia has done 
an incredibly good job over the last 18 months or so of managing a pandemic that worldwide has created havoc. And while the state premiers and the people of Australia who followed rules and lockdown when they were required to, I think, deserve the most credit, you can't separate the federal government from that. The Prime Minister and his team have been instrumental in that process. And so I think credit where credit's due to them for managing us through the pandemic and also managing the economy during that time. Okay, Jamila, you are a much nicer person than I am. I agree with what you've said. However, I also think it skates over a few things. So yes, we have done remarkably well, including because of the federal government in this time of coronavirus. But don't forget, coronavirus took over from the other disaster that we had previously, which was Australia's worst bushfires, which the federal government totally, insert expletives here, dropped the ball on. And we haven't finished. We haven't finished bushfire recovery because we all got distracted by COVID. Now, obviously we needed to get distracted by COVID, but the point is there are fundamentals here that the federal government did badly. And I would also say that in terms of the economy and the stimulus package, that does mean that our economy is doing very well. Left out the arts, left out education, both of which areas I work in and I am obviously biased. But I don't know, I just uh, felt the need to uh, push back on your positive spin, even though I know that you do not share the views of the current government. Yeah, I mean, it was a disclaimer, so I didn't get to the bit that I was coming after the disclaimer. (laughs) Sorry, I jumped in. I just couldn't keep it quiet. Sorry. It would have been a contrast. I do think it's interesting that our authors have chosen to focus so much on the bushfires of late 2019 and early 2020 as a real defining moment in Scott Morrison's prime ministership. Because I think for a lot of people, COVID is at the front of their minds and vaccinations are at the front of their minds and the handling good and bad of those two issues. But I think for a lot of people who weren't directly affected by the bushfires, it started to sit in the back of their minds. But if you do sort of cast yourself back to late 2019, early 2020, Australians were furious absolutely furious that the Prime Minister could be on holiday in Hawaii and when he did return, I think people remember that comment as you quoted earlier, I don't hold the hose, mate. And he was a broadly unpopular Prime Minister at that point. And I think if you double down, as the authors of this book do, on the fact that not only was Scott Morrison unpopular during his handling of the bushfires, but it meant a greater focus on catastrophic climate change, at least for a short period by the public, him and his party were seen in an even more negative light. And I think it's interesting how the authors have taken that frame and contrasted it with the experience of COVID and sort of shown us how Morrison has emerged as a really powerful figure. There's these sort of two opposing Morrisons who are laid out in the book, the I don't hold the hose guy and the powerful person who gets Australia through a pandemic. They do focus on that. And the book has a chronological approach. It kind of takes us through what happened. And I have to say, as a reminder of all that happened in 2020, 
I found this book actually quite useful. My memory of 2020 has some holes in it because sometimes it felt like each day was the same here in Melbourne. And I forgot how much actually happened. So the book is very valuable in that sense. I do think that the book would probably have been stronger if it was delayed just a few months because I think the Morrison that we start to see at the end of this book, which starts to kind of mention some things that started to come out in the media in December, that story has really continued and made a lot of change in Australia. And I'm, of course, referring to allegations of sexual assault and harassment in Parliament by MPs and others. And the book doesn't get into any of that because much of it started to hit the news early in 2021. And so the book concludes with Morrison being this unassailable prime minister and I have no political experience. I don't know if he is unassailable now, but he certainly has a lot more problems than just COVID at this point in time. I think you're right that the book suffers from having been on a schedule that meant it had to be published while or it was in its final stages of publishing where you can't edit the text anymore while there was this huge change going on in Australian politics which was a broader understanding of the experiences of women not just in Parliament House but the experiences of sexual assault sexual harassment of women in workplaces all over Australia you know this was the Prime Minister who stood up at a press conference and said I've talked to my wife and now I understand who walked into a cabinet meeting and reportedly said that he didn't still know there was a gender pay gap, thought it was something of the past. And I think viewing Scott Morrison through the prism of his misunderstanding of such a major challenge facing broad parts of our society, you know, it was a miss for the book, but I've got to say as an author, I feel sorry. I feel sorry for the writers because once a book's on that train to publication, it's very hard to stop it. And I imagine they just wouldn't have had the option to do that. How do you think this book will be looked back on? Firstly, I think it will date. I think it maybe already has dated, but also that doesn't actually reduce its long-term value because good journalism in the moment manages to capture what a country, a society, a people were thinking as events were playing out. And that has a very high historical value. So even though it dates, I think that great reporting of the time matters. But on the other hand, I think that the authors even say it themselves. I mean, these two authors have jointly written several books before on prime ministers. And they actually say in, you know, the opening chapters of the book, we looked around, there's been no biography of Scott Morrison probably because no one thought he was leadership material and there's not actually that much to say. So that is disturbing given that the subject in question is our current prime minister, but also there's not that many long form works about Scott Morrison out there. So this is going to always be one of the first. I also think the authors did a good job generally, not entirely, but generally of remaining as balanced as they could. I think there were Uh, celebrations of the wins of this government but 
you know, as per your frustrations at the beginning of our chat, the book does point out the holes in JobKeeper. It speaks to the arts industry and the number of people in arts and entertainment who were left behind. It looks at the number of people who work in universities and indeed universities themselves being left behind in this strange war on the intellectual sector that is perceived to be left wing by this government. And those universities, of course, have also been damaged by the withdrawal of international student money, which was so relied upon. So they needed that support from government more than most and it wasn't forthcoming. And I think the authors of How Good Is Scott Morrison drew that to the fore quite elegantly and I was impressed with that. I think it would have been easy to write a book that was kind of wholly positive because I think from an international perspective, the story of Australia through the pandemic will be written as a very positive one. I agree. I agree. It will be written positively in the way that Australia has gone down in history as a country that managed the GFC really well, you know, and and we did at the high level. One thing I, this book does raise for me the question of why it's important to have diverse voices and different people writing histories and stories and getting published. This is to really well-educated, privileged white guys writing about another really mostly educated, privileged white guy. And they leave out some things that I found really important. And I'm a privileged white woman, right? So they will have left out many things that I didn't find important, but many other Australians do, right? The key thing for me was they didn't go into the reception of the budget last year, which left out women. And that was huge for me. And it dominated a lot of what I read in the media last year. But these two guys barely even mention the fact that that was a big deal. And I think that's just because their worldview doesn't actually include that, as apparently Morrison's doesn't either. So I feel like the book itself is limited by the viewpoint the authors take, just by who they are. I want to read a biography on Scott Morrison written by someone else. I think the book is strongest when you've got two politically seasoned journalists speaking about Scott Morrison as a political player and a political individual because from that perspective they are bringing forward information and understanding and research based on decades working in the public sphere and I think when the book is speaking to Scott Morrison's pragmatism, he's willing to change direction in the moment if it is politically potent to do so, that's when the book is at its best because it is asking questions about this Prime Minister's ability to govern Australia in the short term versus making the investments and the policy decisions that will reform Australia for the better in the long term. And I think on that latter question, by my reading of this book, as well as my own perspective, Scott Morrison comes up short. Jamila, I am so excited today to be talking about Gunk Baby by Jamie Marina Lau. I am halfway through this book and loving it. Don't spoil it, but hit me with it. No spoilers. I loved this book. I read it in one sitting and I do obviously highly recommend it. Before I jump into talking about Gunk Baby, I think that uh, I just want to draw everybody's attention to her first book, which was Pink Mountain on Locust Island. That was her debut novel. And in 2019, it was shortlisted for the Stella Prize, as well as many other awards. Now, that is an exceptional achievement for any writer in Australia, but also Jamie Marina Lau is very young. She is still in her early 20s 
and her writing is not like anyone else's. She already has her own style and her own strength and I find reading all of her works push me in ways that many books, including many literary books, just don't push me. It is just a beautiful damn feeling. What are your thoughts, given that you're just a little bit of the way through so far? So I feel like I can speak to the style and the structure, which drew me in from the beginning. There's this sense of, Astrid, I'm going to betray how bad I am with music knowledge, but the writing is almost staccato in the way that the author weaves this story with these short sentences. She's really sparse with the way she uses her adjectives. And so when she does use them, they pack a bigger punch and the simplicity of the writing allows it to be really pointed and in your face. And it drives that plot along. And in my early reading, it really set me up for wanting to dive into the world of Gunk Baby out of my own world and really stay there for as long as I could. The world of Gunk Baby, that is a really good phrase, Jamila, because this book is set in its own world, or rather I should say it is set kind of anywhere. Now, for anybody who has travelled, whether that's in Australia or around the world, we all know what it feels like to go into a shopping centre, a shopping mall, right? Mostly they feel pretty much the same and they're built to feel pretty much the same. You know, everything feels clean and there's the air conditioning hum and there are the, you know, the plants inside and the fluorescent lights and it all kind of just feels the same and we are encouraged to buy stuff when we are in that world. It's safe and it's predictable. Yeah, I think predictable is absolutely the world, right? It's why humans like the concept of McDonald's so much. You know, I can walk into McDonald's here in Melbourne, I can walk into one in New Delhi, I can walk into one in Paris, and they're all pretty much the same. And while it's not that exciting, it feels really safe. That predictability gives you a sense of safety. And it feels like sometimes nothing could ever happen because it's always the same, right? So our main character is Lean. She is in her early 20s, maybe 24 at the most. And she, you know, she has a pretty good relationship with her mum who happens to be overseas and quite an absent father who is also somewhere else overseas. So she doesn't really know what she's doing. She's young and she has decided to start her career by setting up an ear cleaning salon, practicing Chinese medicine that her mother taught her. And she's going to set this up in the local shopping mall. This is her goal. And the novel kind of takes us through her thinking, starting her career, starting her life as a business person and how she thinks about customers and the shopping mall and how she wants to essentially package up and sell traditional healing and Chinese medicine. And it starts quite expansively as Lean, our young protagonist, is thinking through all of these things. She wants to go somewhere. She wants to do something. She wants to experience stuff. And as we read, we want to experience that stuff with her. And the mastery of Gunk Baby is that this all happens in a shopping mall and the surrounding suburbs and it's all about suburbia and consumerism and the idea of brands and what buying a brand means. And as we go through the idea of buying stuff and 
buying particular things that represent a certain philosophy or a certain way of being overtakes her thinking. And even though she's still running an ear cleaning salon, uh, practicing traditional medicine, she kind of, for a really lazy phrase, like she's lost the plot, right? She loses her way. And this is where the driving impetus of a young baby is. And, you know, suddenly there's an accidental anti-capitalist cult that happens. And, you know, we get drugs and violence and questioning of life in suburbia. And Jamie Marine Lau is critiquing how we all live. This is a young woman who is taking a look around at our society and saying, well, this is fucked. So our theme today is today, which sounds kind of trite to say out loud, but I'd be interested, Astrid, to hear what your reflections are on whether or not Gunk Baby captures the essence of the world we live in today. Because of course, I mean, a lot of us over the last year or two have been prevented from going to the mall. We've been prevented from shopping in the traditional ways that we used to. But those of us who have been able to have the privilege of staying at home and working at home and staying safe, we've still indulged in a lot of that spending. It's not that our spending habits have changed particularly. There's less experiences, but we're still spending money. We're still acquiring stuff and in a big way, but perhaps we're not going out. So shopping itself is no longer an experience. So does Gunk Baby speak to today? Does it speak to yesterday or does it perhaps speak to tomorrow? Oh, it absolutely speaks to today. And I think also, you know, tomorrow where we are going, no one has stopped buying stuff. Consumerism and capitalism are not dead. We just get everything delivered these days, right? Now in Gunk Baby, there is one particular brand, KAG, that is kind of the focus and it almost becomes a theme or a character in the book itself. And it is a focus for branding and consumerism and kind of what might be wrong with society, right? Now, I read it as a stand-in for Muji or Uniqlo, those kind of brands that uh, come with a moral philosophy, come with the idea of minimalism, but you actually have to buy the brand in order to achieve that minimalism and that philosophy, and you have to kind of buy more stuff to get joy. And, you know, there's like clearly a tension in that, right? And that is explored by Gunk Baby. But, you know, the question behind all of this is, what does it mean to live in a culture that maybe doesn't actually have any meaning? Is there meaning in suburbia? Is there meaning in how we all choose to spend some time in the shopping complexes that don't have any meaning and don't have any purpose in life apart from to get us to forget other stuff and just buy stuff? And it's it's soulless and it, you know, Lau is asking us to reflect on what on earth we are doing here in Australia or anywhere really in the world that has a large fancy shopping complex? I think the word soulless applies here when we think about these shopping malls that look and feel and are the same no matter where you are. And in Gunk Baby, we've got Lean who begins her journey through the novel. She's sleeping on a trundle bed in the living room of her mate's house. Her mate is living off Uh, lottery wins like little lottery wins not a big one and her life is a really simple one and it's not a consumerist life and it's not a commercial life and there's a lightness to that life and an enjoyment of her world and her life despite its simplicity and despite its closeness to poverty I suppose and yet 
there's this darkness, this almost surreal darkness of consumerism that then comes into Lean's life as as she starts her business and starts living her life within the mall. And to what I've read, Lean starts to care more about stuff than people. Yeah, she really does. And as you kind of continue in the second half of the novel, this really takes over. She cares about stuff. She, you know, this is not a a full spoiler, but, you know, she eventually moves out of her friend's house and and lives with someone else who works at KAG, that kind of, you know, Muji, Uniqlo style brand. And essentially the whole apartment is filled with clothes and furniture items that are that brand. And she's basically living in a shopping set up like a a fake model home almost right and so her literal physical life is overtaken by this stuff and you know as we meet other characters and things happen there is drug use and violence and this all kind of this protagonist who started off thinking about her world eventually kind of just we don't even know that what she is reporting to us what is happening in the text is actually happening because of she becomes an unreliable narrator she becomes she starts to use drugs and it makes us this is a comment on the huge use of the way we self-soothe whether that's through buying stuff or alcohol or ignoring reality and responsibilities that is so common in our lives I haven't finished the book yet, Astrid, so I I do need to ask you something. I want to know, does Lean get out of the mall? Because I, even only reading half the book, was struggling to get my own brain out of the mall. In the depths of the book, I was going to sleep dreaming of these endless escalators and bright lights and shiny pattern tiles on the floor and having to go to the ATM for more money. Um, Like I had this real transportation into Gunk Baby's world. So what happens to Lean? I will give you a comparison and I feel very awkward about this comparison and I don't want you to be turned off by this book. To anyone listening or to you, Jam, I think this book is a masterpiece. I am really looking forward to seeing this on shortlist prizes this year. But this book actually reminded me, and I can't believe I'm going to say this, of American Psycho by Brett Easton Ellis. And the reason is the drug use, the escalating violence. There is also a kind of a slightly questionable ending. And as a reader, because of the unreliability of the narrator that kind of increases as we go through and the kind of disorientation that you find in the shopping mall and in this consumerist world, we don't exactly know what happened or how much of what happened happens. And, you know, that is obviously the famous kind of ending of American Psycho. And I feel like Jamie Marina Lau is a young woman of colour who is doing a way better job than Brett Easton Ellis did with commenting on our society. And I also, I did look this up, Jam. It's exactly 30 years since American Psycho was published and I feel like Gunk Baby might be better than it and take over from it. Astrid, we are moving to recommendations and a reminder that our theme today is today. Any recommendations for the listeners? Yes, I have been looking forward to this. I would like to recommend Beyond Climate Grief, A Journey of Love, Snow, Fire and an Enchanted Beer Can by Jonica Newbery. That's a great title for a book, firstly, but 
listeners will probably know Jonica because she was the science reporter on the ABC's Catalyst program for more than two decades. You will recognise her voice and her face. Now, Beyond Climate Grief is her first book and it is a really personal book. This is not a book about the science of climate change. It's got nothing to do with that, right? It's a very much a, a personal story of Jonica waking up one morning and being fearful and being sad and being overwhelmed by the fact that some of her favourite locations in Australia are changing and may not actually exist in a few decades. Now, Jonica particularly loves the snow, and to put it bluntly, the snow is going. And this is a book where Jonica talks about how she feels about that and how we all as individuals can actually have an emotional reaction to climate change, how we can talk to our kids about climate change and maybe answer their questions. And I guess, Jam, why I really want to recommend this book is because of unexpected things that we get in the book. So, for example, Jonica interviews Charlie Pickering and Missy Higgins, and they are both really quite brutally honest about their own personal individual climate grief. Now, I knew that about Missy Higgins, but I did not know that about Charlie Pickering. And reading the interview with Charlie Pickering, I got pretty close to tears because he is talking about how he fears his kid who has all these stuffed toys one day asking him, why are the pandas extinct? And how he, what can he possibly say? So I recommend Beyond Climate Grief because firstly, I have climate grief in it, you know, it helped me, but also because we're all going to have to have these conversations and we need some damn good answers. And this is a lovely, safe way to start thinking about it. I think it's really important that you've brought a book like this to today's episode when we are speaking about today or the current moment rather than a future moment, because we need to drop this ruse of talking about climate change in the future tense rather than in the present tense. And I noticed that newspapers, the news, politicians continue to do that. It's something that's coming rather than something that is happening in the now. So I'm really glad that you have brought that to the table and I look forward to reading it because I am also someone with a little kid with a shelf full of stuffed animals that won't be around very much longer. Yeah. And I mean, what are you going to say? It is a a very much a book for now and for today. But on a different note, what book do you have for us this week? Well, to stay on our really cheerful theme, Astrid, I would like to recommend The Rationing by Charles Whelan. It was released in mid-2019 and that date is important. It's about America and it is about an America that is at the mercy of a very confusing pathogen. Remember, mid-2019. And when normally this wouldn't lead to total catastrophe, the government has dwindled down its supply of something called Dormagen, which is like the silver bullet of pharmaceuticals for this particular pathogen. And just as the demand begins to spike, they don't have enough and they can't make it fast enough. So it it is pandemic-ish. I would describe it as pandemic-adjacent literature. I think a lot of people are trying to get as far away as they possibly can from thinking about pandemics. I'm someone who likes to lean into what's happening around me in the literature that I read. This allowed me to do it in a way that wasn't deeply distressing. I really enjoyed the rationing because of its focus on the politics. 
It's focused on what was happening in the White House, the role of the president, who is excellent but preoccupied, the role of the speaker, who is jockeying for position and actually wants to run their own presidential bid and is more focused on that than they are on disease control. And you've got this super patriotic majority leader of the House who doesn't actually know the difference between a virus and bacteria. And a lot of the descriptions of these various American politicians just rang true in so many ways. I imagine there would have been a decent number of people in the Australian Parliament who 12, 18 months ago were doing a little bit of Googling about pandemics. You political animal, you, I can't believe you're recommending a pandemic adjacent book because of the politics. It was written in mid-2019. It was quite prophetic. This also does sound like a book I would love to read because I love pandemic literature. Now, on Thursday, there's only a few days' time... Kate Ellis, former MP and minister, will be with us to talk about her book, Sex, Lies and Question Time. It is a romp of a read, absolutely fascinating. Kate has interviewed women politicians from across the political spectrum, including some names you might not expect. And she's got some insights into life in parliament as a woman that you do not want to miss. Thank you so much for being with Astrid and myself today for our first episode back for season four. We would like to thank Hachette Publishing, Bad Producer Productions and the wonderful team at Future Women who make Anonymous Was A Woman possible. We'll see you in a few days with Kate Ellis. Listener.